I think it's probably a self-evident truth that people's last words are important. I mean, people generally, if they have the ability to give last words of life, that they're not frivolous, that they're not superficial. That if I were given the opportunity to give last words to Carol, it wouldn't be tomorrow the trash goes out. It wouldn't be something inane or repeated. It would be significant. Have you thought about what your last words might be? They're important. They express what we think, what we believe, what we trust. Thomas Hobbes, the English philosopher, his last words were serious. He said, I'm about to take my last voyage, a great leap in the dark. You can hear the fear associated with those words. What would your words be? Your last words. Can you imagine? It really is worthy of a few moments to ponder that. What would you say? To whom would you say it? Well, we have Jesus' last words here in Matthew 28, at least the last recorded words of Matthew. Now, you know, we started this sermon series back in March 11 of 2012. And uh, I trust you have found Matthew to be a faithful guide that has led us to understand that Jesus Christ is the king. That was his intent, to declare that Jesus has come as a king and a messiah to save. That was his intent, that we might delight in him, that we might believe in him, that we might follow him. But he doesn't end there. If, if Matthew were to have ended there, you would think the resurrection would be the great ending moment. Here he is, raised and glorified, worshipped. But he doesn't. He goes on a step further. He, he seems to end on this regathering of his disciples. Now think about it for a minute. Do you remember the prophecy back in Zechariah where it says that the shepherd will be struck down and the sheep will be scattered? Well, we saw that when Jesus was struck down and the sheep, we haven't seen these disciples in chapters, they were scattered. But now the, she, now the shepherd's been raised. And now he's gathering back these disciples. He's gathering back the followers. Let me remind you, you know, as you noticed where they met Jesus, they met him in Galilee. Why? Why did they leave Jerusalem? Why did they have to make the journey all the way to Galilee? Well, that was where the whole thing started. Remember back in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus enters Galilee and he says that a light has dawned on a people in darkness. And then he begins to preach the gospel to people. The kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. And then he calls disciples. So what he's doing here is his last words, he's regathering his followers at the place that he originally gathered. He's recommissioning them. Like in John's gospel where Jesus says to Peter, after Peter betrayed him, denied him. Excuse me, he said, do you love me? Do you love me? He's recommissioning Peter to go into ministry. Here he's regathering the 11 and others to go out and to be disciples. So the passage, many of you have heard this on Mission Sunday, perhaps, or you've heard it in evangelistic context. I want to take it in a different way. I want to look at this as he's reminding these men and women what it means to be a disciple. If we're going to call ourselves a disciple of Christ, then let's look at the three, at least the words that Jesus uses. What are the characteristics that make up what it means to be a disciple? 
Well, starting in 18, I'm going to jump over 16 and 17. The, the first thing I would remind you, being a disciple means savoring Jesus Christ and his glory. Let me say that again. If you're a disciple, it means that you're savoring Christ. You see him in glory and power, and you delight in him. That's the first step of discipleship. You see this in verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. Now, who can say that? And so now it's Christ who can say all authority in heaven and earth. Well, let's think about that for a minute. So all authority in heaven. So we're talking in the heavenlies. So angels, demons, Satan. Paul, of course, affirms this when he says that Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He has triumphed over them through the cross. So, so there, there is no angelic visitation. There's no demonic terror. There's, there's no heavenly phenomena apart from his will, apart from his sovereign reign. Or the heavenlies, the physical heavenlies, right? The planets and the galaxies and asteroids and eclipses. All of those things are under his reign. But, but not just is the heaven under the reign now of Christ, Christ being vindicated and glorified and victorious, but the earth is. The earth is under his reign. Now, we've kind of already seen this in Matthew. If you remember, um, he was born as the son of David, right? He was a king. Uh, he was worshipped by wise men as king. He was challenged by Herod, who was king. Uh, when he entered Jerusalem in Matthew 21, we see that he, in fact, was hailed as king. When he died, there was a, a plaque, Jesus Christ, king of the Jews. But now he stands resurrected as king. He has taken this kingship, not just by right of creation, but by right of redemption. He's redeemed. He is now king of the world. That there is no government, there is no power that can thwart his ultimate design. doesn't mean they can't bring temporal hardship and difficulty. But no government... No religion, no ism, Islam, no religion can thwart his ultimate design. No political power, no political party can thwart his reign. He's saying all heaven, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Even your own personal lives. We, as we often see ourselves kind of the masters of our own fate, your life is under his authority. Your jobs, your careers, your homes, your marriages, your own bodies, they all stand submissive, subordinate to him, ultimately. That's why Abraham Kuyper, he was a Dutch politician and theologian, said these words which you've heard before, but they bear repeating. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Isn't this a, a counterintuitive way to think? I mean, that Christ would make such a claim? But he says, this authority has been given to me. Now, that kind of raises a question. Well, first, it, it reminds us of Daniel 7. We've seen this verse throughout the Gospel of Matthew. In Daniel 7, we read, And to him was given, you remember the scene, so the Son of Man approaches God, who is called the Ancient of Days. And here's the dialogue that goes. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So you see this scene here where Jesus comes before God, and God gives him this authority and the kingdom. Now, that should cause you to ask, well, I thought he had. I mean, Jesus, being fully God as he's worshipped, didn't he have that authority? You'd say, yes, he did. And then we would say, but didn't we see his authority on earth, right? He had authority over nature when he would calm the sea. He had authority over matter when he produced bread and fish. He had authority over sickness as he healed people. He had authority over darkness as he cleansed the demon eyes. He had authority over death when he brought forth people to life. So how is this being given authority? Well, I, I think I'd like to explain it this way, and then I'd like to give you a quote. This giving authority is really giving authority to Jesus as a mediator, as one who is going to bring to completion God's full plan for his creation. That, that Jesus Christ now stands as king mediator, bringing forth the full plan of God. And then we read in 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to take the whole kingdom when it's consummated and give it to the Father, who is all in all. John Calvin, a great theologian of the 16th century, said these words. He said, Let us remember that what Christ possessed in his own right was given to him by the Father in our flesh, or to express it more clearly, in the person of the mediator. For he does not lay claim to the eternal power with which he was endued before the creation of the world. He was always God, but that which now received he is being appointed to be judge of the world so that's the picture that we're receiving of christ that he stands we're a church gathered in the name of christ under his authority under his lordship now being a disciple means i recognize that and it leads me to worship him and that's what we see some did so if you look back in 16 and 17 when they saw jesus what did some do they worshipped him. I, I mean, they probably, the, the, the arranged meeting place in Galilee was probably disgust. Jesus would have arranged it, perhaps with the women who worshipped him after being raised from the tomb. But there, they, maybe it was a common place they'd always met. But there they met and they worshipped him. They fell on their faces before him. Now, the Jew knew and Jesus knew that nobody is worshipped except God alone. So in their worship, they're proclaiming, they recognize him to be the Son of Man, to be the Son of God, fully God, fully man. This Jesus who was humbled is now exalted. He was dead, but now he's alive. He was defeated, but now he's victorious. I mean, th this is who they're worshipping. Can you imagine? I, I mean, you need to imagine it. You need to think about it, that if this is true, they would have been just absolutely overwhelmed. This man has come forth from the grave, and they worship him. Now, we know these disciples have been scattered. 26, they weren't around. 27, they weren't around. The beginning of 28, they weren't around, the different chapters of Matthew. And yet now they see Jesus, they worship him, and what happens with their lives? I mean, the disciples become warriors of the faith. They were timid, now they're warriors. You know, they, historians tell us that within the first generation, gospel could have gone as far as India and as far as Spain, just from this little band of brothers and sisters who were timid. 
and yet emboldened. Why? Because he has all authority in heaven and earth. So they worship. Disciples worship. But you see, some doubted. This is interesting. The word doubt doesn't mean they disbelieved. To doubt, in this word at least, means they were hesitant. They were uncertain. Literally, they were kind of of two minds. And you can understand why. Remember now, the, the Jewish person would have believed in a resurrection, but on the last day. But here, Jesus Christ has been raised out of the grave. They, who would have ever seen it? I mean, it would have caused great theological confusion. And so they were wondering, how does this work? I can only imagine they doubted. They were uncertain. What do we do? Should we worship him? I thought we only worship God. Not only that, but they see Jesus raised, but they still see Roman soldiers around. They still see the Roman government. They still see evil. So hold it now. He's got all authority, but, but we still have these problems. And, and I want to warn you, you don't want to turn this theological truth into a problem. Like, since the world's a mess, he can't therefore have all authority and all dominion. I want to remind you that the scriptures teach the disciple that, that we see Jesus Christ be raised from the dead so that he is the first fruits of the new creation. The new creation has started. So he is giving us evidence that a work has begun, but it is not yet complete. That's what we call the now and the not yet. God has started a work now, but it is not yet complete. Let me give you an analogy. For example, in World War II, when the Allies landed, in fact, we just celebrated, I think, the 64th anniversary of landing on the beaches of France. Now, the high command, the Allied command, knew that if they could establish a beachhead and begin to move troops and material on, they knew the war was over. The war wasn't finished yet. There were still battles to be fought. There were still lands to be taken. There were still people that would die. But they knew that if this happened, the victory was assured. That's the point of him being raised from the dead, displaying himself before these, before these followers. To, this is what will be for you. So Jesus goes to the doubters and says, all authority has been given to me. All authority. He's drawing them out of their doubt. I, I hope for your sake, if you're struggling with doubt over events, but you, you don't see here, but I want to bring it up with you, that there were some who disbelieved, right? We saw that last week. So in, in 11 to 15, you have this interesting scenario between the women and the guards, and, and they're both at the tomb, if you remember. They both felt the earthquake. They both saw the angel. They both heard the angel speak. They both saw the empty tomb. So all the evidence was the same, the women go off believing, and the guards go off telling the chief priests, who then collude together over some fabricated story that the disciples so, you know, stole them. But think about it for a minute. They're privy to the exact same evidence. One believes and one doesn't. What does that tell us? Well, evidence can always provide a reasonable basis to believe, but evidence cannot create faith. Evidence can't convict you of sin so that you see your need for salvation. It can't do that. And you see it here. Why didn't they believe? My answer to you would be, they didn't want to. They did not want to believe. They had the same evidence as the women, but they did not want to believe. You know, another set of last words, Timothy McVeigh, if you remember his name, perpetrated the bombing in Oklahoma City, he said these words, his last words supposedly was, I am the master of my fate, 
and I'm the captain of my soul. He is not going to bow the knee. It's not a matter of evidence for belief. We trust that it's the Spirit of God to open the eyes. Now, if you're not a Christian here, I'm I'm thankful that you're here, uh, seeing that it's not a matter of evidence, it's a matter of volition, it's a matter of will. I I don't want to believe. But but I want to caution one thing, and that is that looking at Jesus as a good teacher or as a moralist seems to be removed from us here. You know, many people agree with much of what we believe in religion, but they don't see Jesus as having all authority in heaven and earth. And they say, no, 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 we grant you that he's a good man, that he's a philanthropist, that he cares for the weak. We don't have that option. And and let me tell you why. Because if Jesus stands before you and says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, then if he's not being truthful, then he's an egotistical monster, or he's a lunatic, or he can be anything else he wants, but he's surely not a good teacher, and he's surely not a good model, because what he's saying is absolutely false, and you shouldn't follow him if he's not. But if he is, then you're called to bow your knee, to repent of your sins, and to ask for mercy. Because he stands now with all authority in heaven and earth. This is a sobering passage right here. And being a disciple means you see Jesus as having that kind of authority. But, but not just that. Notice what follows. Once his authority has been established and made visible, made clear, he then calls them to make disciples. In other words, being a disciple, secondly, is following his command to make disciples, to make disciples. Now, the early theologians, some of them thought that this only applied to the 11. Some others think maybe just vocational ministers. But we know it can't be limited to those because all the nations have to be, you know, the gospel has to go to all the nations. That can't be done by the 11. We know it wasn't done. Nor can it be done by vocational ministers alone. It's to all of us. The call for you is if you're a disciple, you are called to make disciples. Now, when I speak about making disciples, I'm not talking about getting a person to agree with you on some you know, intellectual truths about Jesus. I'm not, I'm not talking about getting a person to pray a prayer or make a decision. I'm not talking about a commitment. I'm not talking about evangelism, although that's part of it. Making disciples is you're drawing people into the faith through your words and your life, You're seeing them come to faith and then walk and obey. You know, it's a life that is being transformed. Making disciples takes a long time. It's it's, many of us, I think, we look at Jesus kind of the way that some of our modern monarchies are. You know, they have a king and they have a queen and we respect and honor them. And we live lives like, yeah, Jesus is my king, but I want to be the prime minister. You know, it's a dignitary title. It's, it's yeah, yeah. We, we throw him a bone, he's the king, but we want to govern our own lives. And what the disciple is, making disciples, is people are being transformed into increasingly more and more observing all that Jesus taught us. That's what a disciple is. It's not a person who says, I believe in Jesus, although it starts there. Disciples believe in Jesus, and then they begin to live like Jesus. And that doesn't happen in a five-minute evangelistic conversation. 
to make disciples is what he's calling us. We're all called to do that. If you're a disciple, you make disciples. Now, he gives us three little short phrases on how we do that. He says, going. Now, a lot of times you've heard go and make disciples, and, and some grammarians in Greek will say that that go is a command. I don't know. I don't think it is. I don't read it as that. But there's clearly a geographical going, right? Because make disciples of all nations. You got Someone's got to go there and do that. So there is a geographical move. You see it in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So th- there is a geographical moving. But I think there's more than that. Uh, the word itself is actually a participle. It's going. So whenever you're going, however you're going, wherever you're going, make disciples. And what that does is it opens it up now for all of us. That this applies to all of us. It's in the relationships. As you go about life, you're making disciples. So if you're a woman in the home, you're starting with your children. You're starting with those around you. If you're a woman in the workplace, then you're you're moving to the relationships you have there. You're leveraging relationships. You're speaking to people about the nature of this Jesus Christ who now has authority and dominion over all things. I mean, we are going in life, but we start with those relationships closest to us. Why? Because that's God's appointed these relationships for you. Do you realize that in one survey group of people who became Christians, 86% said that they came to understand the nature of the gospel through either a friend or family? We start close, and it begins to go out, that we want to leverage the relationships we have. There is such a, um, I think, an error within Christianity that those who actually go overseas are doing more than those who are staying here and making disciples of those around them. I would say that's a false dichotomy. They're both important. They're both needed. But the bulk of us will stay here. But as you're going, among your family, among your friends, think about the intentionality of your relationships. Not just going, though, baptizing. Now, when you see baptizing, you're thinking, well, that's something the pastor does. He, he dunks the people. But, but there's more going on here. When he says, you know, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, what he's really speaking about is drawing them to faith. In other words, baptism is a sign of entrance into the faith. So it's calling for people, and and we do this, and you are to do this, that when you share the gospel with people, that we often will say, do you believe this? I mean, do you want to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord? And what baptism is, is it's just a symbol. It's an outward demonstration of a new inward allegiance. That's all it is. It's an outward way of displaying publicly, acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the one that I follow. And, and baptism is really an entrance into the church. That's, that's the part you play. That when you are sharing the gospel with people, that the church is part of that because it's the church that baptizes. You don't just lead a person to faith in Christ and say, let's go back. Generally, you bring them into the faith, the church that is. The church has been known as the incubator of faith because our relationships with one another build one another up. So that's what baptism is. It's just, and we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Probably the clearest Trinitarian passage in the Bible right there. In other words, if you're baptized into the name, you're giving allegiance to the triune God that you're going to follow. But then notice also teaching. Teaching is another part of it. 
Jesus is delegating to his followers the call to teach. There is an explicit command that we have to teach one another. Now, this teaching that's going on here is not simply institutional, like I'm teaching now, or in the Sunday school, a teacher will be teaching. I think what he's driving at here is more of an interpersonal teaching, where you are instructing one another, where you're encouraging one another for the spiritual good. In other words, what I'm saying is, if you you leveraged your relationships before, I'm saying you leverage your conversations. That you would be, to make disciples means that you are actively taking conversations and you're trying to draw them to transcendent truth. You're trying to speak to people about the things of God for their spiritual good. Now listen, many of us love to talk about many things. And, and, and I would just ask you to ask yourself, what do I talk about most? For some, it may be politics in this season of time. And you move most conversations to some political issue that you are serious or, or very concerned about. Others of you, it may be schooling opportunities. If you're a homeschooler, that's very important to you. That comes up repeatedly in conversations. If you are uh, concerned about global terror, that comes up in conversations. Or if you're concerned with, you know, it's very important for you to eat right, you know. So organic food uh, is very important to you. That comes up. Or financial security. Maybe that comes up a lot. Those things are all fine to talk about. But just measure how often we're talking about the things that prepare one another for glory rather than just talk about whatever thing is most important to us at the time. Leverage your conversations so that the people listening to you, because we can be evangelists over our political theory. That doesn't really help anybody. may inform them maybe something to talk about, but just measure the content of your conversation. So this is what it means to make disciples, or to be a disciple is to make disciples. Let me just give you a couple warnings. Number one, be patient. Disciple making is incremental. I think probably all Christians should have a, a garden because nothing happens fast in the garden. You have to prepare the soil, you've got to plant the seed, you've got to water, you've got to weed, you've got to wait. But that's the nature of discipleship. You cannot make disciples fast. Why? Because you're preparing another person to see God. That will not happen in a day. It won't happen in a month. Discipleship is hard work. But I would also remind you that discipleship is not just incremental. uh, It's also nonverbal. You know, the way you live your lives in the marketplace, the way you live your lives in the community speaks greatly to what kind of disciple you are. In other words, you know, an epidemic in the business environment is men watching porn on their computers when they should be working. Millions of dollars are wasted uh, in companies paying salaries for people who aren't working. And yet the Christian wants to be pure, wants to live his life above reproach. Why? Because your life, and speaking with integrity, living with purity, that life prepares the soil for you then to share the gospel. That when you share the gospel, it's coming from a life that reflects the gospel. And that eliminates the hypocrisy that so many people wage against the church. I can't believe, well, look what they do, look what they say, I can't get them to marry up. I don't want to believe it. It gives them excuse to turn away.
also other ways that we can be making disciples. We can be moving in the institutions of our culture. You know, there's the, the justice for the, for the orphan, justice for the immigrant, justice for the unborn, justice for the poor. You know, making disciples takes into consideration those institutional struggles that we have. How do we make disciples in those environments? So, so if you ask yourself, how personally involved are you in making disciples? Because being a disciple is marked by making disciples. The engagement, the intentional involvement. You know, you saw 18 or so odd people up here that are joining our church. How are we going to integrate them into our lives? They don't know many of you. It's hard for them to be, and it's tough for me to ask them, will you initiate all the relationships? Although I have said that, that to initiate, but can you initiate with them to seek their spiritual good? So being a disciple is not just savoring the greatness of Christ. Being a disciple is making disciples last. Look in verse 20 with me. Being a disciple is resting in the promise that he will be with us forever. Look at how he ends this gospel. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. What Matthew does is he collapses or he compresses all the other post-resurrection experiences that you'll find in John and Luke. He collapses them into just this one scene before the ascension. Do you notice Matthew doesn't even include the ascension? Why? Because he wants to end with this promise that I'll be with you. Why? Because he started the gospel. In Matthew one twenty-one. we read clearly that the that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be called what? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew is trying to affirm to us the whole mission that we are being given will be done in the presence of Christ. Now, the presence of Christ that he assures us is not to just relieve us or cause us to escape out of every trial that we have. The presence of Christ is given to us in the context of making disciples. It's given in the context of this mission that Jesus has set out on and has given to us will be successful. My presence will assure it so. And do you notice he says to the end of the age that this mission will continue all the way till the end. And implicit in there is he returns and brings judgment. So so there's there's a time frame here. He assures us of his presence So for those of you who right now are feeling kind of overwhelmed or how can I make disciples? I don't know what to do. I'm not sure how to do it. I don't have the gifts. He is encouraging us. All authority belongs to him. His presence is with us. It assures us that we can do this. Now, to further this goal, we're going to be starting next week a five-week series on making disciples. What does it mean exactly? How do we do it practically? They're going to be topical sermons, which I just love, but they're topical sermons, and they're going to be very, hopefully, very practical in the way of instructing how do we go about doing this in more detail. So, so three things about being a disciple. It's savoring the greatness of Christ. Being a disciple is following his command to make disciples. And then being a disciple is trusting, resting, walking in light of the promise that he'll be with you forever. So let's take a minute now and just silently, perhaps for some of you it might lead to conviction of sin that 
I haven't been doing this and you feel a measure of guilt before God, I would ask you to speak to him. Perhaps for some of you it's an encouragement, you're asking for grace. But, but take a few minutes of silence and speak with God and then Ray's going to close us in just a moment. Thank you.